LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is David J. Brown who joins us to discuss his latest book, The New Science of Psychedelics, at the nexus of culture, consciousness and spirituality. For as long as humanity has existed, we have used psychedelics to raise our levels of consciousness and seek healing, first in the form of visionary plants such as cannabis, and now with the addition of man-made psychedelics such as LSD and MDMA. These substances have inspired spiritual awakenings, artistic and literary works, technological and scientific innovation, and even political revolutions. But what does the future hold for humanity, and can psychedelics help take us there? Sharing insights from luminaries such as Terence McKenna, Edgar Mitchell, Deepak Chopra, Jerry Garcia, Annie Sprinkle, and Rupert Sheldrake, the new science of psychedelics explores the revelations brought about through the author's psychedelic experiences and his work with visionaries of the psychedelic and scientific communities. The book investigates the role of psychedelics in creativity, lucid dreaming, time travel, sex and pleasure enhancement, morphic fields theory, encounters with non-human entities, the interface between science and spirituality, and the nature and evolution of consciousness itself. Revealing not only what psychedelics can teach us about ourselves and the world around us, David also shows us how they are preparing humanity for a future of enlightened minds and worlds beyond our solar system. Hello and welcome, David, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. It's a pleasure to be here, Greg. Thanks for having me. Now, David, today we're going to discuss your new book, uh, which is called The New Science of Psychedelics, subtitle at the nexus of culture, consciousness, and spirituality. Before we dive into that, perhaps you could just tell listeners um, who don't know a little bit about uh, your background and your career. Sure, I'd be happy to, Greg. Um, I'm, a, I'm a science writer and, and a researcher. I've been um, I've been writing about uh, the cutting edge of uh, science and technology for about 35 years. I uh, I write about um, I write about uh, new developments in health and uh, and uh, technology, and um, and mostly for the past uh, 10 years, I've been uh, very involved in uh, the science of uh, psychedelic drugs. I do interviews with uh, extraordinary uh, individuals. And I've been um, I've been uh, researching uh, uh, parapsychology and um, different uh, unexplained uh, abilities of uh, human beings and animals with uh, British biologist uh, Rupert Sheldrake. I did a uh, research with him for three years that got um, put into his book Dogs That Know When the Owners Are Coming Home. And my um, my most recent book, the book that you're talking about, uh, The New Science of Psychedelics, is basically a uh, collection of what I've learned from 35 years of uh, interviewing uh, people who are on the cutting edge of um, cutting edge of uh, science and technology and art and uh, culture, and um, 
interfacing those ideas and those interviews with what I've learned from my uh, psychedelic experiences. Uh, I've been experimenting with uh, LSD and, and DMT and ayahuasca and many other psychedelics since I've been a teenager. And these uh, different psychedelics had a profound uh, influence on my career and on my uh, on my writing and uh, the research that I've done. So I've, in this new book, I try to pull together uh, what I've learned from all these different areas and, and try to make some sense out of it and show how the different areas influence one another. In other words, how uh, my psychedelic experiences uh, influenced my, uh, my interviewing process and then how my interviewing process, what I've learned from interviewing some of these extraordinary individuals, how that then influenced uh, what I experienced on psychedelics later on. So there was this kind of, uh, kind of uh, feedback, a loop that was uh, created between these different areas of my life, and uh, and I think that uh, that I was uh, shown and taught quite a bit by uh, by um, by higher intelligence. So uh, so I was uh, basically trying to share what I've learned in this new book. People coming to this from, say, a more mainstream perspective who haven't had any psychedelic or other drug experiences, they they may be aware, for example, that that cannabis is a plant that uh, you know, just grows on the earth. But they may have, in my experience anyway, they often have the perception that drug use, psychedelic or otherwise, is, is quite a modern phenomenon and, and generally involves man-made substances. But this is not actually the case because as far as we know, humanity has always used consciousness-altering substances, uh, mostly naturally occurring ones over the millennia. And for oh, example... Yeah, there's no, yeah, yeah, there's no question about that, yeah. And I mean, DMT, dimethyltryptamine, you can tell listeners a little bit more about this in a moment, but this is a substance that's an incredibly powerful psychoactive compound, and it occurs naturally in our own brains and in many other life forms on Earth, too. Yeah, one of the things that comes to mind as you're saying that is that um, there was a wonderful book by uh, Ron Siegel called Intoxication several years ago that uh, talked about how uh, every single uh, human culture on planet Earth and every single animal species has a relationship with a plant of some kind or plants of some kind that produce intoxicating or consciousness-altering or mind-altering properties. Um, it's certainly certainly nothing new. Uh, we've had uh, symbiotic relationships with plants for their psychoactive properties since uh, since before history. Um, the archaeological evidence shows. So there's a there's a long, long, long history not only with our own species but with uh, every other animal. Um, every other mammal certainly has a relationship with some type of plant that has intoxicating qualities. So this is a, this is an ancient ancient sort of relationship. And uh, what you mentioned before is, uh, is one of the most intriguing of all is the relationship between human beings and the hallucinogen uh, dimethyltryptamine, or the psychedelic compound dimethyltryptamine, or DMT. Uh, DMT is a very mysterious and intriguing compound. It's, uh, it's found naturally in the human brain. It's found naturally in many different plant species. And nobody knows uh, what it's doing uh, in the brain or in these plant species. There's never been a, um, there's never been a function that's really been described um, that makes sense. People have proposed that uh, it could be responsible for dreaming um, in the human brain because uh, it's, it's at its highest uh, peak levels around 3 o'clock in the morning. So people have proposed that as an idea. People think it could be involved in uh, spontaneous mystical experiences and uh, possibly in mental illness like schizophrenia. But uh, what's really uh, perhaps most intriguing about DMT is the symbiotic relationship that human beings have gotten in with it in terms of uh, using it as a, um, um, a ceremonial or a sacrament in the, primarily in the, um, in the Amazon basin. 
Um, I just got back uh, from my ketos a couple weeks ago, and I got to partake in a number of ayahuasca ceremonies down in the Amazon, and was uh, was uh, simply blown away by by what I experienced. But it is just simply um, astonishing to know that for hundreds or thousands of years, uh, the, the native people have had this relationship with uh, with the DMT uh, in the form of ayahuasca, which is. Uh, which is uh, basically a brew from two different plant species, uh, one that contains the DMT, which is not orally active when consumed by itself, but when combined in a brew with, uh, with an MAO inhibitor called a harmaline that's found in the vine called Banisteriopsis capi, uh, that is, uh, makes the DMT orally active. And how the, how the Indians in the Peruvian jungles and the Amazon basin, how they were able to figure out and uh, come upon this uh, this combination of an MAO inhibitor and a psychedelic compound that's activated by it. Uh, nobody knows. Uh, the natives there say that uh, the plants told them about it. So it's uh, it seems as uh, it seems as good of an argument as any. I suppose it's uh, certainly is very mysterious, and, and no one can really understand uh, how what is it that's happened. But uh, but certainly our our relationship uh, to the plant world and uh, to the botanical. Uh, all the botanical wonders that are around us is, a, is an ancient one, and uh, it's, there's certainly nothing new about it at all. Well, that's actually another important aspect of this that you raise, because a lot of the mainstream coverage of whether it's psychedelics or other types of drug consumption um, is very much portrayed as purely recreational um, and usually as quite a bad thing, quite decadent. Uh, but the most of the history of mankind's use of these sorts of compounds has had that sacred ceremonial element to it. These were not things to be trifled with by any means. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, basically every culture will, will set up a group of drugs that it accepts. Um, in the West here, we have uh, alcohol and tobacco and, and a group of drugs that other cultures use that it demonizes, you know, ayahuasca or cannabis or whatever. And, uh, and basically it does this to sort of protect itself. Um, psychedelics uh, can, can be dangerous to a culture uh, to a culture's establishment, because they dissolve uh, they dissolve conventional ways of seeing things, and um, and and because uh, because uh, belief systems can be uh, can be uh, reorganized, because people can uh, can change their thinking as a result of doing psychedelics. Uh, this is recognized by uh, by governmental institutions, and uh, they're and they're they're frightened of these substances uh, for good reason, because they. They, they they can cause people to uh, to change their mind about consumerist or materialistic culture, and um, and and as a result, uh, you know, change their political views and uh, change their behavior. So so these uh, so these uh, psychedelics certainly have a uh, potential for um, for uh, for causing great political change and uh, and great societal restructuring. And I think that's why they're they're so greatly uh, feared by the by the um, by the powers that be, and uh, and are often demonized and uh, ridiculed, and um, and uh, and then and then they're and then they're basically uh, modeled as recreational or uh, or something that's that's being done primarily uh, people to get a kick out of. And uh, anybody who's looked at the history of psychedelics knows that um, while some people may use it uh, for that reason, the majority of people on this planet have used psychedelics uh, as a sacrament, as a way of uh, Producing a religious or mystical experience, and in many cultures they're revered as, as being sacred uh, portals to uh, to mystical dimensions of consciousness. 
and uh, and I think that um, that our our culture right now, the Western culture, uh, America and Western Europe, and um, and um, parts of Asia are right now um, opening up uh, to uh, to what psychedelics can teach us. They've been uh, they've, they've been uh, we somehow lost our connection with these sacred plants uh, a couple thousand years ago, and they're right now being uh, reintegrated into our culture uh, thanks to thanks to scientific studies that are being uh, done on them and just the general saturation of the population. Every generation, more and more people have experience with these substances, and uh, as a result, they're opening up their minds more and um, and recognizing uh, how archaic and uh, and literally uh, barbaric the uh, the old laws are, uh, putting people in, in jail for uh, for opening up the states of consciousness that allow them to connect with the divine. I mean, what could possibly uh, what could possibly be more barbaric than that, right? Well, this brings us to the aspect of of this again from a mainstream perspective is the illegality of a lot of these substances and the controversy surrounding them. And of course, that can be a bit circular because they're illegal and because they're controversial, therefore, but then they're controversial, so they're made illegal <laughs> and what have you. Yeah. But the propaganda that flows from the mainstream and the fear mongering around all sorts of drug use, and let's be clear, there are certainly things out there we can put into our bodies that are not good for us and potentially dangerous, but a lot of this is coming from, I love your phrase, for our puritanical overlords, and whether they be religious fundamentalist types or whether they are coming from a materialistic, reductionistic worldview, there does seem to be you know, a very clear, if somewhat you know, hidden, that doesn't sound like an oxymoron, agenda at work here. Well, it certainly seems like there, like there, like there's a hidden agenda. I really don't think that the uh, these governmental agencies that are making psychedelics illegal are doing it uh, to protect us uh, from ourselves. Uh, certainly, uh, a jail sentence is uh, is a far more damaging to one's health than uh, doing a psychedelic. We know from the scientific studies that have been uh, that have been done that the health risks have been uh, greatly exaggerated. Um, in fact, a, a recent study that was just uh, just uh, done in Holland uh, showed that um, people who have done LSD actually have a, a lower than average risk of a mental illness, that it actually decreases people's uh, risk of uh, getting involved in any type of psychiatric illness. So so the, the, the health risks um, have certainly been uh, greatly, greatly exaggerated. And uh, I don't think that the, the government's uh, agenda was was in the first place to protect people as a as a health or a safety risk. I think that their 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 agenda is really much uh, much more nefarious and much more uh, self-centered. I think that they're basically just trying to protect themselves. It's it's like I said before. I think that these substances, what they do is they dissolve cultural boundaries. They they dissolve the conditioned ways that we see the world. And in, in this process, it, it really is a very threatening uh, thing to uh, to the establishment culture because people begin to question it. People begin to question: Is this is this uh, materialistic, consumeristic culture really, you know, the the way we want to be uh, spending our energy uh, when you know when we're putting the biosphere in such danger? It, it wakes people up ecologically, uh, so they begin to see that what they do to the environment, they're really doing to themselves. And uh, this process, I think, is process. I think is absolutely necessary for our survival as a species. But for the the temporary governmental institutions that are that are presently controlling the planet or governing the planet, um, they represent a, a, a huge threat because they are, you know, they they they, they could very well dissolve um, the whole consumerist culture that's been um, been propped up and uh, and uh, and protected and uh, and 
with armies and with uh, huge amounts of money and with uh, enormous amounts of uh, enormous amounts of pressure, cultural pressure. So I think that um, that uh, that these that these walls are going to fall. I don't think they really have much of a choice. I think that uh, if we're going to survive, that these cultural boundaries are going to dissolve. But uh, for the longest time, they've uh, they've ridiculed and uh, demonized or, or ignored the uh, the positive value of psychedelics, and we're we're now beginning to uh, to reclaim them as our as our birthright, as our natural birthright. That uh, the psychedelic experience is uh, is part of who we are, and that. Uh, and that no government in the world is allowed to tell us uh, what we can and what we cannot put into our bodies and uh, and whether or not uh, we can change our own brains if we want. Well, this was the promise of the 1960s counterculture, uh, wasn't it? And uh, I don't know what your views on this are, but that seemed to hold, again, there's so much threat for certain you know, sections of society and so much promise, as I mentioned, but... It kind of just, well, we all know what happened there, really. It, 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 it didn't quite die, but it certainly stamped on from a great height. Yeah, there was, there was definitely a, a, a clampdown when the establishment got frightened by what was happening, certainly here in America with the, uh, the Vietnam War protests and uh, women's rights and, uh, and uh, I mean, just, you know, everybody wanting rights of every kind, people opening up their eyes and uh, becoming more ecologically aware, more racially aware. Um, this whole kind of process, I think, was uh, was highly catalyzed by uh, psychedelic drugs, um, you know, in the, in the mid '60s, and uh, and it, like I said, it scared a lot of people um, because it uh, really threatened the, the powers that, that you know the powers uh, the powers that were presently in control. So uh, so yeah, so I think that um, so I think that as a result of that, uh, there was uh, they, they were certainly not only did they make psychedelic drugs illegal. But they they stopped all of the scientific research into psychedelic drugs for oh my goodness from like 1972 until 1990 uh, there was uh, no research done with LSD no research done with psilocybin no research done with MDMA no research done with DMT anywhere in the world I mean there were certainly people using it recreationally and certainly people using it uh, as a sacrament underground but you know scientists were, were not allowed to to research these uh, these like, wondrous chemicals and that's part of the great renaissance that's occurring right now that we're that we're all we're all we're all celebrating and so happy about is uh, what maps and the hefner research foundation and uh and uh, the beckley foundation and um, the spiritual uh, council of spiritual practices all these wonderful organizations are helping to uh, spur catalyze and uh, organize uh, scientific research into psychedelic drugs all over the planet right now we've got uh, lsd studies going on in switzerland we've got mdma studies with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder here in the in uh, North and uh, South Carolina, and uh, all over the world now, we've now got uh, you know close to two dozen different studies with psychedelic compounds going on, which is uh, really wonderful. But but there was a a, a huge uh, uh, repression and a huge um, huge inability to to do this research for so many years as a result of uh, as a result of the uh, the establishment's um, reaction to the uh, counterculture and its uh, association. With, uh, between psychedelics and um, uh, Vietnam War protests and that sort of thing, so it's uh, so it's, so now with time it sort of separated itself and uh, and psychedelics are no longer uh, quite uh, quite associated with uh, the counterculture like they were and uh, and all their unique medical values are coming to light. I remember just thinking of what you're saying about ecological awareness, um, a general sort of more planetary consciousness. Uh, the first time I ever took LSD. 
and once I'd gotten the word looking at the other people in the room and their heads were expanding and contracting, <laughs> once I'd done looking at that, I then realized, wow, the chair I'm sitting on, the carpet, the curtains, the television, the cat, at a fundamental level, it's all made of the same stuff. Everything's profoundly and completely connected. And I just wasn't able to look at the world in the same way again. I mean, as you say, the so-called doors of perception, once they're opened, there isn't really any going back. Even, I know you're not, you don't subscribe to, to um, Alan Watts' idea of like hanging up the phone once you've got the message, but even if you just do something like that once, you can't unlearn what you learned. Oh, absolutely. And, and, for, and for, for many people, uh, doing a psychedelic is just once is all they need uh, in a lifetime to have the kind of awareness that's really necessary for our species to survive. Um, you know, my, my, my own communications and, and my own interests are, you know, are, are, are different than what I think is really healthy for the average person in regards to the remark you made about Alan Watts and hanging up the phone. I, I mentioned that in my book. Um, you know, it was a little bit of a joke, but, uh, but I, you know, I, I've done psychedelics repeatedly and feel like I've learned uh, quite a bit from my repeated experiences. But I think, really, uh, in terms of ecological awareness or spiritual awareness, I think that all it takes is just one time, just one time, and and yeah, you're right. You can you can never undo it once once you've seen the truth with a capital T. I mean, it's there forever, and you can never erase it. So yeah, that's that's the beauty and the wonder of these types of experiences is that all it takes is once, and uh, and then you're never the same again. <laughs> now, people who have had people listening to this who have had some form of psychedelic experience will understand most, if not everything, that we're saying at you know at a deeper level. And one of the issues, I know you address this in your book, both, both the issue of trying to describe uh, a psychedelic experience in words and also doing so quite successfully, I thought at various times, but it is very, very difficult to do. I mean, most of us would say it's, it's virtually impossible, but that didn't stop you trying. And that is one of the one of the issues with trying to convey something that's a bit like trying to describe an orgasm. I mean, you can say it's the most pleasurable thing you'll ever experience if that's how you feel about it, but that doesn't really convey anything about it to the, the person who's never experienced it. That's true. It, it certainly takes a shared experience uh, to form the foundation that would be the basis for any type of communication. So there certainly there has to be a shared experience or, or an experience that's similar enough that one can relate to. Uh, so one can, uh, you know, extrapolate from that person's communication and imagine what the type of experience might be. So, so it, so it does take uh, some type of uh, initial experience. But it was, it was, you know, it was for the longest time, Greg. You know, people were saying that uh, the psychedelic experience is inevitable, That it's, there's no way to actually describe it in words. And 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 for the and I think that part of the problem. Is that we, we we don't really haven't really developed a, a language appropriately, and that we're, we're we're doing it, and and this kind of idea was a bit more common, I think, in the 60s that that the experiences uh, that psychedelics produces are, are are indescribable and there are no words, but I think uh, people like uh, Terence McKenna, uh, for example, have uh, have shown that uh, you can actually you can actually say quite a bit with words that really does seem to uh, communicate uh, something about the experience. Um, I mean, Terence was able to communicate um, his, uh, his uh, journeys on uh, smoke after smoking dimethyltryptamine that uh, were experiences that most people would have said, there's just no way you can put these things into words. And he somehow, you know, really found uh, linguistic tools for doing so. So uh, 
So I think I think part of it is just that uh, it's just that there haven't been enough people that have had these experiences, and there hasn't really been a, a proper language uh, that's, that's been developed. But I think we're we're really in the process of learning one by 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 say borrowing uh, different concepts from uh, different fields of science that seem applicable to uh, describing aspects of the scientific experience of the psychedelic experience, or being able to uh, borrow from uh, artistic metaphors or other other uh, other mediums of uh, human culture. It seems like sometimes we can get uh, tools for being able to describe or language for being able to describe this psychedelic experience, but uh, but I think we're going to get better and better at it with with time, and I think that uh, that our language of this is going to evolve, and that uh, in the future uh, this will be something that we'll be able to communicate quite effectively. In fact, I think that uh, psychedelic experiences are actually going to set up a whole new medium for communication itself. I I and many other people have had what appear to be uh, like telepathic uh, conversations while while you're tripping on ayahuasca or LSD. And this is a very common phenomenon. This is something that's really true and something that could be uh, learned and evolved and uh, amplified and and, um, perfected in some type of way. Then then maybe we can, uh, you know, actually use it as a way to, to improve our communication skills and our abilities into a, into a whole new area that uh, human beings have, uh, you know, have barely been able to, uh, to comprehend just yet. In terms of um, how natural or how part of the human experience psychedelic um, experiences have been, you know, down the ages, um, it's interesting that from what I've read that in childhood, um, kids can be in a sort of a psychedelic state up until about age of six, you know, the barrier between the inner and the outer doesn't really, it hasn't become firmed up in the way that, uh, you know, most adults understand it. Yeah, I, I suspect that uh, the early childhood is very much like uh, like living in a psychedelic experience that when, you, when you're an infant. I mean, one of the things that I, you know, the very first time I did LSD and saw trails, um, move, my hand would move and I would see these uh, wispy vapor trails of color following my hand movements. There was this immediate feeling of like deja vu, like wow, I've seen this somewhere before, and and uh, and I remembered then it was, it was when I was a small child or an infant. I remember lying in a crib, and and as when people would move, I would see uh, wispy, uh, colorful trails that would follow their movements. So uh, so I think that um, that when we're very young, and I think that one of the first things that people experience when they do a psychedelic is, oh, I feel like I'm a child again, or I actually feel so like I'm young again. It's one of the, the first uh, descriptions that people use for these type of experiences, and, and I think it's actually a very apt description because it brings us back to our kind of uh, primal or primordial kind of or uh, you know original state of consciousness, and um, and once we're back there then we can re-imprint and be reborn and uh, change ourselves and redesign ourselves and, uh, and come back as uh, something new and something better. But, uh, but it allows us to, uh, to return to that sort of uh, childlike, uh, childlike state of innocence and uh, in so doing, uh, give us the opportunity then to, uh, to be able to, uh, to redesign ourselves in a, in, a, in a more sophisticated fashion. Yeah, in a world where so many people's attitude seems to be, well, just everything's shit, the psychedelic experience shows you that, that everything is amazing, it's incredible, it's wonderful that there's anything here at all, and everything's inherently interesting. Well, it, it also show, you know, it shows you possibility. I mean, psychedelics amplify experience. 
so so they could they could certainly uh, you know just as much, just as easily terrify somebody as as they could as they could amaze somebody in spiritual wonderment. I mean they they have this you know this funny ability to to, uh, to 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 astonish, bewilder, um, you know, seduce, attract, beautify, and uh, terrify, and uh, enlighten all at the same time. They they do so many different things, but um, but uh, but uh, certainly. Uh, Certainly, they they they're they're, uh, they're powerful tools that uh, that should be used wisely because of all these uh, all these different properties that they have. But um, but yeah, they uh, they certainly they certainly can uh, they certainly can open people they certainly can open up people's eyes uh, to the beauty and the wonder that people uh, have forgotten about the world and remind them of how they saw it when when they were a child. And I think this is a uh, is absolutely uh, absolutely important. I mean, one of the first things that people do when they when they do a psychedelic is you know they just look around at the world around them, and it's just like, my God, I, how long has this been going on? Like that I didn't see this. My God, it's just like, you know. So there's that that sense that that it's always been going on. That there's this like there's this beauty around us, and and we're always uh, we're always missing it basically, and that they're just basically lifting the veil and allowing us to see something that's that's really always there. Well, didn't Terence McKenna have that description with his little elves that uh, kind of they're waiting on the other side and they're always there uh, doing their little elf dance or whatever they're doing, and you arrive and it's kind of like, okay, you're here, you know, we've been waiting for you. We we thought you'd never get here. <laughs> yeah, I'd say that's actually a really common experience when a lot of people um, smoke DMT. They they have that experience where it's it's not like they're entering into a you know, and into a dream or a reality that they're creating. It's more like they're they're peeking their head into you know through a portal into another reality that has a pre-standing existence and that has a continued existence after they pull their head out of it. And things happen and things go by. And when you stick your head back in it, I mean, there's time gone by and things have passed. And you know, it's uh, it has an independently uh, existing uh, reality, or so it seems. You know, and then there's the other experience with uh, people who, uh, you know, when they uh, have psychedelic experiences, that what it is that they're realizing is uh, is something that they've kind of always known or, or that they knew about a long time ago and they somehow forgot or has been going on somehow below their uh, level of uh, conscious awareness, but but not below their level of unconscious awareness. That there's somehow there was a perception of these things uh, unconsciously that they that they just never quite uh, rode to the surface of their consciousness. Uh, just, I just touched there briefly on, on childhood, and I should mention to you that the, perhaps unexpectedly for you, but the single most astounding bit in your book for me personally was your uh, story about the giant dragonfly. The reason I mention this is because that happened to me too. I saw it when I was a child. I saw this unfeasibly large dragonfly down by the river when I was playing on my own. And it oh, hovered for a bit and then flew off. And I just read and I just thought, wow, that's what are the chances of that? Oh, that is well. That's Greg. That's you're blowing my mind right now. You, well, you're the first person to tell me that ever in my life. Uh, I mean, I was kind of blown away when I spoke to um, my, uh, my my friend, the late author uh, Robert Anton Wilson, uh, about this at one time, and he told me that he had seen a giant spider, like a three or four foot spider, when he was a young child, um, and nobody ever believed him, and he was absolutely sure of what he had seen, but. Uh, well, Greg, you're the first person in my entire life to uh, to, to tell me to tell me that they've seen. So what would tell tell me what was your experience like with it? I'm very 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 curious. It was like um, just suddenly everything else in the world went away. It was a it was a hot summer day and it was very still, 
and I'm down by the river and I just I don't remember what I was doing, just kicking around doing much and nothing probably. And I just became aware, it just sort of moved into my line of vision. It was over the water. And I sort of wanted to sort of scream and run away because I've never really been you know, a close one-on-one relationship with insects. And it was so big. And I remember immediately the first thing I thought of, because like a lot of boys, uh, I've never understood this either, but a lot of boys, of, certainly in my generation, I was obsessed with dinosaurs. And yeah. I'd read a book about you know, and it was a, the breadth of life that there was around all the time, the dinosaurs. It wasn't just dinosaurs, it was these giant insects as well. And that's the first thing I thought of was my big, large, illustrated book that had a big picture of this giant um, dragonfly. And it was like everything else in the world sort of stopped and it was there. And it was almost, I felt like it was aware of me in a way, you know, in a, in a strange sort of a way. And then it just moved off and that was it. And then for some reason, I didn't think that much about it later and i'd actually completely forgotten about it i mean why would i think i mean this is like you know 30 something years ago it's so but you read it in your book and it just brought it all back like it happened yesterday well that's just i mean i'll tell you greg that's just absolutely fascinating and that blows my mind what you're telling me i i've never heard this from anybody else and uh and i'm just delighted to hear the story from you i i find it absolutely uh absolutely compellingly interesting um my uh you know as as you know from reading my book that my experience uh, seeing a, i saw a dragonfly that was about three or four feet long um when i was a child and uh, i followed it around my house and then it zipped off and uh and just took off into the ether and i have no idea uh what i saw and years later uh telling people that uh or, you know, at the time telling people nobody believed me, and then years later seeing uh, pictures in, uh, in books about um, prehistoric uh, animals and seeing the dragonflies did reach that size and telling people, this is what I saw, this is what I saw, I'm positive what I've seen. And and, uh, and that being sort of a very uh, powerful experience for me in terms of it being one of the, one of the key points of my life where I, I you know, realized that uh, conventional science and... Um, you know, and uh, the traditional uh, traditional institutions um, don't really have the you know the final say on, on what's real and what's not. Um, it made me realize that, uh, that that there were that there were things that happened that aren't easily categorized or aren't easily explained. And uh, you know, and people there people have uh, cited animals that uh, you know that Bigfoots and uh, and uh, and uh, different types of uh, Sasquatch creatures and things that. Uh, haven't been able to be categorized uh, zoologically, and um, and I've been fascinated by this my whole life by unexplained phenomena and things that don't that don't easily uh, fit into a scientific uh, category. That's how I got involved with my research with uh, British biologist Rupert Sheldrake and morphic field theory and uh, the unexplained powers of animals was it was basically because of that. But uh, but that that really is uh, fascinating your experience with the dragonfly. The way I the way I ended up uh, the the model. I mean I never. I never. I try never to, to believe anything fully. I try to just develop models for explaining things, but uh, I think it's dangerous to have uh, belief systems, which I which I abbreviate as uh, BS. I think for good reason. But uh, the the basic belief system that I kind of developed for what I think that dragonfly was was I, I think it's uh, what what's been referred to in uh, literature as 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 uh, a, a daemon. There's this whole area of uh, of scientific inquiry where there's a very interesting and very compelling evidence uh, for things that um, that don't have any like really firm uh, scientific uh, proof that will convince a hard-nosed skeptic. And, and you know, this area I'm you know, talking about things like uh, like crop circles or like um, 
like uh, alien the alien abduction phenomena or uh, cattle mutilations or things like this if you if you actually look at the if you actually look at the, uh, the experiences people have and you look at the the, the, the huge number of them and the, and the amount that they have in common and I mean there's just you know the, the evidence is, is is extremely extremely compelling but yet there's never any kind of like proof that will really convince a hardened skeptic so it's sort of like sits in this sort of ambiguous area where there's, you know, anybody who looks at it has to admit that there's something going on, but at the same time, for some, you know, like, you know, just like extremely frustrating reason, you know, genuine, you know, uh, you know, convincing, you know, absolute proof is, you know, never arises, and and I suspect that there are like prankster spirits or like prankster intelligences in the universe that like that play with us and toy with us, and uh, they've been historically called uh, called demons. And I suspect that this is what's happening with uh, crop circles. That crop circles, anybody who looks into this phenomenon will see that there is something really weird going on that conventional science cannot explain. You know, however, you know, the, uh, you know, the explanations we can't come up with don't really make sense. And you know, and so it's it sort of puts us in this you know very 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 you know uh, very tricky situation where we, we, we have to admit there's something going on that conventional science, you know, can't quite explain, but what it is, we just don't know. So, um, and this happens, you know, with a lot of different areas, like I mentioned before, with like Sasquatch sightings or Bigfoot sightings or, or UFO abductions or all these different areas, there's like this very, very strangely compelling, compelling evidence without any kind of absolute proof. And I wonder, you know, if, uh, if you know, my experience with a child seeing that, that dragonfly wasn't some type of a daemon. That was the, you know, the model that I used for what happened to me as a, as a way of sort of like uh, nudging me into, into uh, looking into the unexplained phenomena or uh, things about the world that, uh, that aren't quite understood and, uh, and, and just sort of uh, winking at me and, uh, and showing me that there's, a, there's uh, all these unsolved mysteries in, in nature that are just, uh, are just waiting to be uh, toyed with and uncovered. Well, I mean, if you look at the, the world from the reductionist materialist perspective, actually everything from the Big Bang to evolution, I mean, they're all theories. There isn't hard evidence as such. There is, there is a lot of evidence, you know, some of it more empirical, as it were, oh, yeah. than others. But oh, yeah, well, but if, you, if you look at, the, I mean, anybody who studies the philosophy of science, I mean, they, they admit this right off. I mean, science, this is why science is, is so beautiful. I mean, science in its most absolute form never says it knows. Science never says it proves anything. In its most absolute form, the philosophy of science basically will propose a theory to account for the data. And the theory is just basically the best model uh, to account for the data until, until a better model comes along. And usually more data accumulates that makes that model obsolete until a new model has to form to account for the new data that then makes incorporated, and this is this is you know traditionally what's called a paradigm shift in science, when when an all when a theory becomes obsolete. But uh, but it would, every every good scientist every good scientist will, will tell you that science doesn't prove anything, that science that science never never demonstrates anything with abs with any kind of absoluteness. All it does is all you can do with science is is prove what isn't true. You can demonstrate what is not true. And, and in demonstrating what's not true, what's left is what could be true. So your, your theory is, 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 is the best model that you can form to explain the data, you know, from what's left uh, that could be true in the, in the simplest way you can. 
and that's basically what a good theory is. But uh, certainly, certainly, uh, certainly, a good theory is no more than than a theory. And uh, and you know, as my as my uh, as my my good friend, uh, late late Robert Anton Wilson used to used to do in all of his latter books was, um, and I try to do whenever I can, is is to not use the word is. Um, nothing, nothing is really anything because you never really know fully what anything is in its ultimate sense. Um, you all you really know is is how things appear to be at the current time. So I try to I try to replace is with appear to be whenever I can. Talking about psychedelics again, you mentioned, of course, a highlight throughout the book that it can be profoundly pleasurable experience, also absolutely terrifying depending on the circumstances, and it can be both those things almost at the same time. And that first LSD experience I mentioned earlier, one of our co-conspirators, shall I say, she didn't have a great time uh, because all of our the other people in the group, all their heads became replaced with insect heads, and she didn't enjoy this one little bit. And at the time, I wondered if she had brought something there. I mean, is, I mean obviously, there, we do to an extent. We bring our, our other our outside world perceptions that we're in and who we are, who we think we are into this. But do you think it's possible to have that sort of influence on a psychedelic experience, or are we somehow beyond our control getting the experience that we need at that time? Well, it's an interesting question. I, you know, I mean, I, I, I teach workshops on uh, navigating altered states of consciousness, basically, on, on, on teaching people how to uh, how to uh, how to how to journey on a, on a psychedelic experience uh, effectively and safely. The most important thing that we teach people in our workshops is uh, is the value of a set and setting, which is uh, this, the, your your uh, your set and your setting. This this refers to uh, to the environment that you're in, which is your setting, and your mental state, uh, which is uh, what we call set. And it's the combination of your of your mental state, um, you know how you, how you feel at the time, uh, whether you're happy or sad, whether you're worried about something, whether you have something. Uh, on your mind or not, or whether you, uh, or whether you uh, just experience a great deal of success, or whatever the different, uh, uh, you know, psychological and emotional uh, factors and social factors are that uh, that have influenced you, you take into the experience, and then of course the the environment that you that you do it in is of utmost importance because, you know, the the people if if they're not trustworthy, you can become paranoid if you don't feel like the environment is. Uh, is stable or safe in any way, uh, you can also get paranoid and frightened. So, uh, so it's this it's this intimate combination of, of set setting, and then of course the, the the dosage of the drug that really determine the experience. Um, you know, so so that intimate combination is, is is largely what you know when we educate people about this about this process. Those are the three main factors that people have uh, control over. Is is over there? You know, doing it um, in an environment where they feel uh, safe and trustworthy, and as and as aesthetically uh, pleasing of an environment as possible, and with uh, with people that uh, they they trust with their life absolutely, and um, and you know, and being in the, in the best of moods, being uh, calm and centered, and uh, and being. Um, 
Oh, uh, not being worried about anything, not having any kind of obligations or anything, uh, any concerns that that need to be uh, need to be on one's mind. All those things uh, should all be uh, eliminated as much as possible, so that one's in the best state of mind as possible. And then, of course, uh, the, the the dosage, you know, is uh, is very very important. One would need to to read up on previous people's experiences and find out what the dosage level that one one is aiming for should should be if one isn't familiar with it them, themselves. But um, but then, of course, I think maybe what you're also getting at is, is there like this other factor involved in it? And is there, and I'm not sure if you're getting at this or not, but um, but it was, you know, when I was, I just, like I said, I just got back from, uh, from the Peruvian Amazon uh, a few weeks ago, and I was able to experiment with uh, traditional uh, plant-based ayahuasca medicines down there. And, uh, you know, I've certainly done uh, the same combinations of psychedelic compounds that you find in ayahuasca. I've done them before. And, uh, and, I, and, I've, and I've done uh, many, many, many different psychedelics. But, um, but what, I, what I found with, these, uh, with the ayahuasca was that uh, this other factor uh, that can be part of what happens during a psychedelic experience that can play a role is the the consciousness or the intelligence of the plant, and uh, and I'm I'm not exaggerating or kidding if you're if you're uh, if your listeners aren't familiar with this, but when when you do a high dose of uh, magic mushrooms or uh, ayahuasca, uh, you literally feel like you are communicating with another intelligence or another species, um, and it has its its own its own mind and its own agenda, and I you know definitely get a very good feeling from from these uh, spirits that I've encountered uh, within the plant species itself, within the mushroom or within the ayahuasca, that they're basically here to help us uh, become more ecologically aware and to, uh, to help uh, catalyze our, our, our evolution. But, uh, but they, you know, they certainly can have uh, their own agenda in terms of contributing to the experience. And, uh, and you know, and and there's certainly aspects of an ayahuasca experience that, that feel like you're being taken onto a onto a journey, and the amount of control that you have over what you're seeing and what you're experiencing may be limited, or uh, well, it may be limited by by your own personal experience in terms of the more experience you have with it, the better control you gain with it over time with being able to navigate and control what happens during a shamanic voyage. But uh, but sometimes it also feels like you are being uh, taken um, onto a particular journey to be shown something in particular by this other intelligence. And if that's the case, then it's, you know, then there's, then there's basically, uh, you know, another factor besides that setting and dosage that enters into this, which is the, uh, the intelligence or the uh, agenda of the, of the plant spirit itself. And, uh, and that's you know that's certainly something that needs to be uh, researched more carefully in the future. I think cause, uh, because uh, you know where we can go with that as a species and the, the symbiosis that we can develop by uh, by by uh, by, by uh, forming a type of union or a type of a communication system with a with a, another uh, another entity in nature uh, could certainly help to uh, to spur our own evolution on uh, even further and. Uh, maybe save our species from extinction before it's too late. Yes, well, I'll touch upon that area where psychedelics could potentially help all of us again in a moment. But uh, just before I forget, <clears throat> I recently watched a film I hadn't seen for many years, and that's uh, Altered States, uh, which is a 1980 film 
directed by Ken Russell and starring William Hurt, his first ever screen role, actually. And I was reflecting afterwards on that and how alluring altered states of consciousness can be. But I had no idea that uh, uh, your friend, colleague, the late John C. Lilly, that I was actually somewhat based on, on his um, psychonaut experiences. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, it was based on uh, his experiences. He's the person who invented uh, the isolation tank and, uh, and, and did a whole series of experiments uh, on himself uh, using uh, LSD uh, in the tank and, uh, and uh, ketamine. Um, his experiences uh, doing uh, LSD in the isolation tank um, were summarized in a book that he wrote called uh, Programming and Metaprogramming in the Human Biocomputer, which is an absolutely fascinating uh, you know, guide to uh, navigating altered states of consciousness or uh, psychedelic journeys. And I uh, highly, highly recommend the book. It's absolutely fascinating. Then John actually, uh, you know, a lot of people think the movie Altered States is uh, kind of campy. Um, but uh, I actually enjoyed it as well, and uh, and so did John. Uh, John liked the movie, and uh, you know the movie is, uh, is is based on his life in a kind of wink wink way. And uh, and uh, John said that he was uh, that he liked the film because it was clear from watching the film that the people who were involved in doing the special effects for it had uh, had obviously experimented with psychedelics. So though they may seem a little bit uh, a little bit archaic. Uh, you know, in 2013, uh, at the time, they were actually pretty state-of-the-art and uh, and pretty amazing to see somebody attempt that type of, uh, to put the type of experience uh, uh, cinematically expressed on the screen was, uh, was certainly delightful. He's always toying with, uh, on the fringes of uh, ego dissolution, complete dissolution of the ego in that film. And that's sort of, you can take away from that to some extent, particularly if you haven't had any psychedelic experiences, that this is, he only saved himself from, you know, from imminent doom, that this would be a terrible thing, you know, that it would be, it would be his death and complete dissolution of the fabric of his being, just wiped from the universe for all time. But I remember watching it and thinking it was really telling us something here, potentially about what happens after death, and also underscoring the interconnected nature of everything and, and the idea that perhaps there is one universal consciousness and we're just all little individual expressions of it. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, you know, what springs to mind when you say that is, I don't know if you're familiar with the movie uh, Brainstorm. But, oh, yes, absolutely. That's another interesting 1970s bit of sci-fi. Yeah, it? yeah it was made around the same time. And uh, um, Stanislav Grof, uh, the LSD uh, psychotherapy researcher, was actually a consultant for that film. And there's a it's, a it's a film about somebody who develops a technology that allows people to record um, any type of neurological or brain experience, and then other people can play it back and, and have their, their their actual experience. Um, so you can record uh, you can record your sexual experiences, you can record your psychedelic experiences, you can record your dreams, uh, whatever, and then other people can relive them by hooking the machine up. And uh, what's What's most interesting about the film, probably, is the, is the very you know final scene where uh, somebody uh, hooks up this recording device uh, to themselves as as they're dying, and records their their death experience. So then you could basically uh, you know replay the tape and, uh, and and experience what it's like to die, and uh, and that I think is uh, absolutely fascinating. And they did a beautiful job with it in the film. I think it's. It's really nicely done, but I mean that's one of the things, as you know, from reading my book, that's absolutely fascinated me. And all the interviews that I've done over the years is, uh, 
you know, is asking people what they think happens to consciousness after after physical death, after the death of the body, and exploring that mystery, I think, is uh, one of the most profound ways of uh, of uh, expanding the human imagination that we know of. Yeah, they don't they don't really make films like that anymore. The 1970s, I think, was a golden era for um, for cinema, uh, all sorts of all sorts of genres of films, not just you know sci-fi or whatever, and. You know, one of my favorite films ever is one called Phase Four. It's to do with uh, the collective intelligence of ants and, and the collective intelligence of humanity losing out to that. It's, it sounds completely bonkers, and it is. But these days, if they're going to make a film like Brainstorm or like Altered States, I mean, I know there is romantic interest in Altered States. That's a part of the story. But they would have to have basically explosions and uh, explicit sex, car chases, and films in the 70s are able to treat these very serious esoteric subjects, you know, without getting into all that nonsense. So it'd be fascinating to see somebody write a book about uh, the influence that uh, psychedelics have had upon film and, and cinema. I mean, there, there was, of course, I mean, in altered states, but, you know, they, they did have the whole, you know, man, turn into, man turns into monster, you know, dynamic that, you know, that uh, wasn't, you know, in any way connected to John Lilly's life. They had to do that for cinematic reasons. And, and for to keep the you know the audience or their uh, producers uh, happy, but um, but yeah, but I but I see what you mean, and it really would be interesting for somebody to do a whole book. It'd be so interesting for somebody to just do somebody somebody did one kind of uh, one one attempt at showing the influence that psychedelics have had on the music scene, but it was itself the book's so old it's hardly uh, doesn't even you know I think it doesn't even come up to 1990, but. It'd be nice to have a whole series of books that were written specifically showing how psychedelics have influenced uh, these different areas of culture, how they've influenced, um, how they've influenced film and cinema, how they've influenced music, how they've influenced uh, you know science and uh, technological innovation in, in different areas. It's uh, such such a rich and fascinating area um, of the human experience, and you know in terms of cult, you know the uh, role that psychedelics have played in terms of cultural innovation that's been that's been largely overlooked by uh, by our mainstream media and by uh, and the majority of people who are uh, who are keeping the historical records on, the, on what our human culture is experiencing. But it's one of the things that I've tried to do in my in my new book and in much of what I've much of what I've written over the years is to archive, you know, how uh, psychedelics have played a role and uh, in you know. In, Every area of, of, of science and art and, uh, and uh, religion and spirituality um, that uh, the human beings uh, endeavor in—they've—they've uh, they've helped us to, uh, to 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 reorganize and to culturally innovate, and, uh, and you know, basically every area of uh, human endeavor, and that much of this information uh, could be lost. And you know, in my books, I'm trying very hard to archive all this information so that not all of it, at least a portion of it, so that uh, future generations uh, will become will be aware of the very important role that psychedelics have played in terms of catalyzing uh, cultural innovation and human evolution. You know, I think it, you do in the book, and I think it's very important to, po to point out that uh, the psychedelic influence on human creativity extends beyond entertainment, so to speak, you know, ideas for films or, or, or albums. Um, that it gets into the areas of uh, science and technology. So I think that's really, because people just think of it as a sort of, at best, benign, a sort of a bit of entertainment, but uh, it's much more important. Oh, far, far more important. Apple Computer um, 
founder, uh, co-founder uh, Steve Jobs said that uh, his LSD experiences uh, were among the five most important experiences of his entire life. And uh, part of the reason that Apple Computer was uh, so innovative, many people would say, is not only because of uh, Steve Jobs' psychedelic vision, but also because uh, part of his hiring process, according uh, to, one of, uh, to one of his employees after he died, part of his hiring process was that he would actually ask people uh, when they were applying for the position uh, how many times they've done LSD before. <laughs> and he only hired people who had, had experiences with LSD. So it was, uh, many people are unaware that uh, there's a great book called uh, What the Dormouse Said that details the, the intimate role that psychedelic drugs had on uh, the development of Silicon Valley and the personal computer and the Internet. And, uh, it was uh, largely created by uh, people who were using psychedelic drugs. Uh, another area of science that it had a very profound impact on was uh, the area of uh, genetics or uh, biology. And there's uh, um, oh, uh, Kerry Mullis won the Nobel Prize in the early 90s for his development of uh, PCR, the polymerase chain reaction which is what made genetic engineering possible. And, uh, and uh, Carrie, who I interviewed for my book, uh, Conversations on the End of the Apocalypse, uh, talks about how, uh, how it was psychedelics that were instrumental in him being able to uh, develop this type of state of mind that allowed him to, to, uh, to come up with these ideas that revolutionized chemistry. And uh, Francis Crick is uh, you know, the Nobel Prize winner for... Uh, for co-discovering the structure of the DNA molecule, uh, is also um, uh, reported for having said uh, that uh, LSD, small doses of LSD, were uh, were instrumental in helping him come up with the the uh, envision the structure, the double helix structure of the DNA molecule. So, uh, so these uh, these are just a couple of examples um, in, in in my books and in the bulletins that I. Uh, uh, edited for maps and wrote about this. I, I show many, many, many more examples, but uh, these are the kind of things that we, we, we don't want to be lost because uh, because uh, psychedelics have had real tremendous, tremendous value uh, in terms of uh, helping us to uh, not only innovate culturally, but I think also they're, uh, they're instrumental in terms of uh, us being able to survive as a species. This brings us on then to another main plank in the book, which is beyond what psychedelics have already done for us collectively is what they may offer in future and you know there's a lot of things good things going on in the world and i'm certainly an an optimist but uh you know we're in big trouble on many fronts and there's a section in your book which i found most interesting if so perhaps now we could just talk a little bit about alarm clocks television news and male circumcision Well, a lot of people think I'm exaggerating when I when I say that uh, alarm clocks, uh, male circumcision, and the TV news are, are are really three of the, the primary causes uh, of people being so unhappy in the world and there being so much anxiety. But uh, but I really think there there is something to that. Um, there there's scientific evidence that shows that uh, that that a part of the brain, uh, the amygdala, part of the brain, is associated with uh, fear responses. Is, uh, is permanently damaged uh, when somebody has uh, a circumcision as a, as an infant, um, and and that this uh, you know this uh, tends to make people uh, more anxious uh, throughout their life. And if you look at the areas uh, where people tend to be the most anxious and the most violent in the world, um, you know the 
seem to strangely coincide with where people are routinely circumcised, where men are routinely circumcised in the Middle East and in America. And, uh, and then the evening news, which just focuses on the very worst, uh, the very worst of uh, what civilization has to offer, um, you know, is, uh, is, you know, is blared in everybody's living room uh, every, you know, uh, every night. And then uh, people's sleep cycles are, are, are disrupted uh, every night by an alarm clock. And I think that all these things really do kind of, uh, you know, really kind of work together to uh, make people, uh, you know, worried and, and, and unhappy and anxious. And, and this is one of the, the major, major causes for, for a lot of the problems in the world. And that, um, you know, and then you brought up, the, you know, the future possibilities with, uh, with psychedelics, which I, I think are, are very, very profound. And I just wanted to say, I mean, I think it's wonderful that there's so much great research going on in the world now with, with psychedelic compounds uh, in terms of their medical potential. Uh, we're looking at uh, ways to treat uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder with uh, MDMA, uh, ways to treat uh, the anxiety that, that comes with uh, with a terminal illness or uh, with approaching death uh, by using LSD or, or psilocybin. Um, and uh, there's uh, other studies that have shown that uh, there's a potential for treating cluster headaches with LSD and obsessive compulsive disorder with psilocybin and there's just a really kind of a renaissance occurring with all these different um, medical treatments that can be developed from uh, psychedelic drugs. But, you know, uh, I'll tell you what really excites me more than, more than that, I think, is, uh, is their potential in, in other areas, their potential for, you know, as a, as like we talked about, as a, as a stimulant for creativity, you know, not only in, uh, not only in the, in the arts, but in the sciences and, in, uh, and as a, as a, uh, Ability for its ability to um, to allow people to very uh, reliably have uh, mystical experiences or religious experiences, and and then the, the health benefits and the societal and ecological benefits that all stem from people having spiritual or mystical experiences, and and then you know research into its into its um, uh, its ability to p- potentially allow us to communicate with non-human entities and and uh, life forms that exist in other dimensions or parallel universes or allows us to really explore and see if there's any uh, scientifically verifiable, you know, reality to these types of experiences that people report with ayahuasca and ketamine and DMT and that sort of thing. So there's there's incredible potential, um, you know, for research into these areas that, that, you know, that isn't being explored today that, uh, you know, that is just focusing on, you know, uh, medical applications and, uh, and things of that, that nature, and that uh, in the future we're going to have a uh, another renaissance, a second renaissance that will, uh, I think, that will uh, that will explore these uh, these substances for their for their creative, uh, create creative and uh, spiritual, and, uh, psychologically transformative potential as well. You touched upon one of the most fascinating questions in all of this, and that's. Does say for example we're talking about DMT. Does the do the entities do the realms in the DMT state have any kind of objective reality? And certainly we talked about Rick Strassman and his uh, research that he did. His subjects often reported that not only did it seem to have objective reality, it felt hyper real compared to the world that they had stepped out of. And then of course there's the question of you know we have a definition that'll di- differ I suppose with individuals, but a generally accepted definition of reality. But as Morpheus says to Neo in the Matrix, 
what is real. And personally speaking, I've talked to people before about dreams. Uh, you know, my dream, they'll say, oh, yeah, it's not real, though, is it? And I say, well, I experienced it. It happened last night. I didn't dream it. You know what I mean? It actually happened. So that whole question of what reality is, is, is fundamental to this as well. Absolutely. Yeah, you hit upon a very important point. I mean, certainly, I mean, certainly from a philosophical point of view, I mean, all we ever really know is our own experience. That's the only thing we can be sure of is that we're experiencing something. And that's the only, the only thing I think we can have any, any absolute assurance of. But, uh, you know, yeah, you're asking a really profound and important question that I've been thinking about and, you know, contemplating for, for a long time, uh, ever since I first first uh, smoked DMT when I was uh, in my early 20s. I, uh, you know, have been pondering uh, whether or not uh, the beings that people encounter when they when they do DMT or ayahuasca, uh, whether these beings uh, that that like you say seem hyper real and not only hyper real but hyper intelligent, whether they actually have an independent existence or not, or whether they're simply, you know, parts of our own mind that we're projecting projecting outwards and uh, looking at as if they're independently, but are really just the backsides of our own brains. Uh, Rick Straussman, as you know, as you mentioned, uh, you know, I discuss in my book. Uh, uh, he's a psychiatric researcher at the University of uh, New Mexico. Did a five-year study with uh, giving um, DMT uh, different doses to volunteers. Very sophisticated group of volunteers who, you know, had years of psychotherapy and uh, other psychedelic experiences behind them, and and you know, and and would not accept the the, the model that this is a you know just a projection of your own mind or this is a dream or or this is your imagination, or this is a hallucination, or or any of those models. They, they, they you know they said with absolute you know absolutely convinced that there was a reality to the the, na- the nature of these beings having an independent, freestanding uh, existence that was separate from themselves. You know, and and I, I pondered this and thought about this uh, for, for for so you know for so long. And it's it's just, it's one of these things that doesn't really seem to have an answer. And I think that. I think that part of the problem in terms of examining this question is really that the nature of the question itself um, makes an assumption that uh, that the inner and the outer are, are 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 distinguished to begin with, and and we know from mystical experiences or you know from the, um, basic religious experience, so when people proclaim that all is one and and, and not, you know everything is inseparable and all boundaries dissolve. Then I mean, isn't that also have that? Wouldn't that have implications for an ex, for an experience like this? If everything really is connected and everything really is, you know, really is of one mind, then 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 you know, then going on a DMT trip and encountering beings within that is all happening within the one universal mind. So again, you get back to this like tricky inner and outer. You know, what's you know, how do you distinguish between? Between I and now, between you know me and you, between us and them, it's it's very very tricky, and and uh, and and I think that the only way we'll ever be able to really kind of understand what's happening better is by uh, reframing the question or uh, you know reunderstanding it in terms of in terms of not uh, so sharply distinguishing between what's inner and what's outer, but by understanding that they're, they're parts of an inseparable whole to begin with. So, but you know, but, but then again, you know, is it is it part of the universal mind, and and you know, and just uh, and and you as an individual, or is it part of your your own individual brain? You know, it's this is something that would be wonderful for us to try and, and research and, uh, and and find out. 
find out. I mean, this is why I would love to see this kind of a scientific research done in the future. It would be wonderful to really explore these things uh, scientifically and to see if uh, if there is some, some reality to this and if we really can get uh, information, for example, that the person couldn't possibly have known uh, through, you know, a channel, through one of these entities, uh, communication channels, then that would be some type of... Uh, at least compelling evidence that uh, that the evidence that these beings have a, a freestanding existence uh, independent of our own brains. But uh, gosh, wouldn't it be just absolutely fascinating to uh, to do a study and to explore this? I mean, what a what a rich rich area for uh, fertile research. Now we've been talking in general terms here about you know human development, evolution, where we're going, not necessarily physically, but in terms of our consciousness. And you touch on this in the book that there does seem to be some emerging evidence that young people are somewhat different from their parents and grandparents, that there's a generational change here. And I'm not sure if I subscribe to the idea of the indigo children as such, but I certainly see some differences. I'm not a parent, but I do observe this generally. And what I see is kind of a strange dual process in the sense that we have people reporting about IQs dropping and I don't know if you've seen a film called Idiocracy by Mike Judge, but we might all be moving in that sort of direction. But consciousness is rising. There is a, a, an emerging planetary consciousness that is elevating. And it's almost a little bit like in H.G. Wells' Time Machine, where, and this wouldn't necessarily be a healthy development, it's almost like the human race is, is, is dividing into two halves. Gosh, a couple of things come to mind as, as, as you say that. Um, I mean, it seems like... Uh, First of all, I think that the, that the human species, that evolution, that the evolutionary process is, 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 is not a random chance uh, process. I think that there's a, there's a, a guiding intelligence um, that's not only guiding uh, you know, the whole evolutionary process, but, but every generation. So that, so that literally, you know, every time a, sp- a sperm and an egg uh, form a union, that there's a genetic intelligence there that, that, that's guiding, uh, you know, how that, that organism is going to develop in the context of what's happening uh, in terms of cultural development. So there's a, so there's, I think the DNA is, is intelligent and is able and is able, is able to sort of scan the, the cultural environment and able to then continuously every generation, uh, you know, pump out or uh, design, uh, you know, new uh, new breeds, so to speak. A new breed. I think every generation is different and is more evolved and and is and is doing so in, in alignment with as the culture uh, evolves. But uh, in terms of whether the human species is dividing into two species or whether it's dividing or I mean my feeling is more like the human species if if, if we don't go extinct which is a, a possibility um, but but I, I, I don't think we are I, I think that uh, I have great hope for us uh, for us uh, for us surviving this uh, this test that we're being put through right now I have, have great hope because like I said I think there's an intelligence uh, to the process and I, I'm well aware that most animals go extinct, but I think there's, you know, there's still a, a, a it's, 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 it's an evolutionary, it's of survival importance that every ecosystem actually keep evolving. So I think that, that you know, that life will keep evolving and that the intelligence uh, behind uh, these uh, types of decisions is doing so in a manner that's going to allow us to survive in a way that sort of, um, 
oh, you can look at the dinosaurs as a model. Uh, you know, even though the dinosaurs went extinct, um, they uh, they left descendants, uh, which are the birds today. Their only living descendants are birds, and I think that they form sort of a higher order of uh, biological complexity or higher form of intelligence than the dinosaurs were. And I think the same thing's happening right now with human beings that we're actually going through some type of of uh, you know of some type of evolutionary test where um, maybe a very large portion of us will will go extinct. But I think that something is going to come out of us that, that will survive, that will be akin to birds or, or angels or, or or whatever, you know, we call the, you know, Ray Kurzweil calls the singularity or whatever it is that we're moving into where we fuse human intelligence with artificial intelligence and, uh, and nanotechnology and, and uh, quantum computing and all these things come together and whole new species, not only, you know, not only a new species and not only two new species, but I think that the that human species as it is right now will give birth to thousands and thousands and thousands of new species. I mean, the, the same way you look at, say, you know, uh, you know, the you know the common ancestor of uh, you know there was a, you know rabbits and, and foxes had a common ancestor. I mean, I think we're going to be the common ancestor to you know to billions to countless new species, extraterrestrial species that are going to evolve out of us. And all, and all these new species are going to go off in, in different directions. And, and to think that the human species has, has one linear direction, I think, is uh, is very uh, is underestimating uh, the, the power of nature, nature and the potential of nature. And uh, because we know from, you know, our own evolutionary past that it's not like things followed a straight line, that, you know, that, that there were, uh, whenever there was a tremendous kind of upheaval and evolution that it often branched off into many different directions at once. And I think that we're a very high, we represent a very high order, you know, bifurcation in the evolutionary process. And and from, you know, from us forward, you're going to see the development of many, 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 many new species. Well, I think that's a very positive note on which to end. Um, just one more thing, David. What would you say, perhaps, to a curious listener who's never had any sort of psychedelic experience? And obviously, we, you know, as sovereign adults, we choose what we do with our bodies and our lives, and we have to be careful about, quote-unquote, suggesting or recommending other people um, have certain experiences. But, you know, it's obviously had a very positive effect on your life and work. So I just, what would you say to a curious listener who, doesn't have anything that they can use to hang a handle on this idea of a psychedelic experience? Well, if somebody's interested in, in psychedelics, I would suggest that they educate themselves uh, about them as much as possible. Um, read as much as you can. Um, read absolutely everything that you can possibly read. Uh, go on to Arrowwood. Arrowwood's a, what a resource uh, for, uh, for being able to find out about uh, other people's experiences and uh, and read, um, you know, there's now there's like a, my publisher, Inner Traditions, has now published. I mean, just I mean a couple of dozen books on psychedelics a year. It seems they're publishing so many. Right and left is so much uh, valuable information uh, that's now being uh, um, now available for people. Uh, Maps also makes a, a lot of uh, great information available. I would say it's just that people educate themselves uh, as much as possible and. Um, and really, if somebody is interested in having a psychedelic experience, I, I would highly recommend that they uh, look into going down to down to Iquitos, uh, Peru, where uh, where ayahuasca and uh, San Pedro cactus are both legal, and uh, one can uh, legally and uh, safely uh, participate in uh, in a psychedelic uh, ceremonial 
um, and ceremonies down there where uh, you know hear healing ceremonies or for uh, for spiritual illumination or for insight into one's life or that sort of thing so uh, so uh, I would I would highly educate myself uh, first and then uh, if one is uh, actually interested in trying these things I would uh, recommend uh, talking to a tour guide about uh, taking a trip to uh, to Peru. <laughs> Well, David, now we've been discussing your new book, uh, The New Science of Psychedelics. That's widely available. Um, but perhaps you'd like to share with listeners uh, details of your websites and uh, just anything else you'd like to put out there. Um, people are interested in really in staying up with, uh, with my work and, and what I'm doing. Really, the best way uh, to do that is to, uh, is to like, in quotes, like my, um, my, Facebook, uh, my Facebook fan page, David J. Brown, which uh, one can easily find on, uh, on the web. And, uh, and then, of course, there's my uh, website, uh, www.mavericksofthemind.com. Mavericks of the Mind, all one word. Uh, and that, that archives uh, all the interviews that I've done with uh, cutting-edge uh, thinkers and uh, many of the articles that I've written about uh, science and the brain and uh, health and, uh, and psychedelics over the years. So, uh, so those are the two best ways to, uh, to stay in touch with me and to keep in touch with what I'm doing. Excellent. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. It's been a pleasure, Greg. Look forward to doing it again one day. Well, folks, that's it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please check out the website. That's LegalizeFreedom.com, Legalize-Freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics, including world affairs, politics and economics, science and technology, religion and spirituality, conspiracy and alternative history you can also browse and buy a range of books and dvds from our guests and if you're feeling generous make a donation to help keep the site up and running until next time i'm greg moffat and you've been listening to legalizefreedom.com